Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Travis. We're Southern men de-reconstructing the South. So Civic Ethics comes from the third volume of Dabney Discussion. Uh, now, the one that Zach Garris uses in Dabney on Fire is the slightly longer intro. I'm sorry, the slightly longer version. It's found in his, in his uh, essay, The Practical Philosophy. Now, Dabney here is just trying to lay out what are the principles and the justification for civil magistrates? This is about civil government. What are the spheres of influence for the civil government? And what, where are their boundaries? Where, where are the boundaries, both positive and negative? Um, what do they have legitimate authority over, and then what, what do they not? So, he starts this off with three different opposing theories. Uh, the first one is a very common, commonly understood, well, it's a commonly known but very, very much misunderstood idea of the social contract. And it was presented by Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau. Um, the second is the divine right of kings. And then the third would be what he's calling the theistic basis for civil governance or civil obedience, civil. Yeah. The theist, theistic basis for civil obedience. Uh, so, so essentially yeah, what, what he's trying to, what he's trying to hash out is by what authority does a civil magistrate have authority? Uh, the, the civil magistrate cannot grant itself its own its own authority, because if not, it, then it becomes despotic. Uh, we, we see that across the globe with people that are, um, especially, in, especially in third world countries where you see warlords, they take over and it's because, quote, it's because I said so type government. But when we really get down to brass tacks, Scripture says that we are to obey civil authority, but it also defines what civil authority is. So Dabney just simply tries to hash out and, and find the most consistent argument for what he and, well, frankly, what most Presbyterians or Reformed-leaning uh, Christians believe and uh, it is to where the magistrate gets its authority and why we should obey them. Um, the, the first one he gets in is the theistic basis, which I think everyone, well, is the theistic basis, which both me and you would agree on is the, the bedrock of all governing authority. Like the, the, all the other ones are completely moot if there is no theistic basis for it, because Without a supreme authority, no one truly has authority. It's just might makes right. It's this kind of um, it. It's a it's a bit simplistic, but the way that it was always described to me 
is um, you know there's there's uh, autonomy and there's theonomy. This is the way that it's been described. It's very simplistic, but uh, autonomy essentially says that man has authority to act on their own according to their own will, whereas theonomy is that man only has the right to act in accordance with God's law when governing. Now, this isn't the theonomy uh, that you're going to get with, uh, what's his name, Bonson? I think Bonson was a theonomist. He was, and Rush Dooney. Uh, uh, Rush Dooney, that's the guy I'm thinking of. This isn't the kind... This isn't the kind of theonomy that we're talking about when we talk about uh, Rushduni. What we're talking about is uh, specifically where is the source of authority for human governance? Now, so on one hand, the autonomy in which we talk about is this social contract. Now, social contract, Hobbes and Locke, they both used the social contract as a way to say that man has authority within himself to resist outside governance. And they tried to make this, make authority on the basis of human cooperation. It's a social development, according to this theory, arises out of human pe human beings desire to interact with one another because we're social creatures we lay down this this underlying understanding on how we should live and this becomes the standard by which we live this is the social contract and government is derived from that in the social contract theory now, the theistic basis for civil for that the theistic basis for civil obedience, as Dabney is saying, and the divine right of kings both pull from a theonomic system. They both say God has given man the authority to rule over man in certain instances through the civil government. One invests that power into a single line of people, this clan of leaders, whereas the other uh, essentially decentralizes it from that system. The ruling family was pulled very much from the aristocratic system that was in place during the Middle Ages. This is it was the the king of kings, so to speak, of men would be the king as we understand it historically. Um, this clan of elevated individuals who were bred for the purpose of ruling others. The theistic basis kind of breaks that down as scripture does not say that this is how it ought to be done. Scripture gives certain... Uh, jurisdictions to the civil government and then requires the government to stay within that scope. What's also important, and then I'll shut up, um, there's, there's a couple of 
things that needs to be understood from Dabney that I I believe influenced him in this direction. I I, I can't say this directly because I haven't heard him specifically quote it, but I believe that it influences him at least at least in part. One is the Doctor of the Lesser Magistrate, where it is the le Lesser Magistrate's responsibility to resist tyranny from the Higher Magistrate. And the second, because he was Presbyterian, he also gets from this, also from the Scottish, because the Doctor of the Lesser Magist Magistrate was a Scottish Protestant doctrine, he also gets from this the bottom-up federalistic system that we have that we lost in our federal government but this is how he saw government this is how the southern uh, philosophers and aristocracy saw civil government it was a bottom-up system where men are elected based on competence and this goes back to the middle ages as well men are elected based on competence and then when they overstep their boundaries, they are held in check by the lower magistrates and then ultimately the people. And this is, the, this is one of the major tensions in the war, in the Civil War, because the other side was saying the exact opposite, that the highest rulers of the land are the rulers of the land, not by the support of the lower magistrates, but because they are in that position. And that position has the natural responsibility to rule down instead of the lower levels of power ruling up, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it also seems to pull from the um, the teaching of uh, consent of the governed, which was a reformed tradition doctrine. Uh, not, yeah. I don't think it. I don't think it was as widely held as, as say, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Even though it kind of, you know, the the doctrine of the lesser magistrate kind of necessitates the consent of the governed, because yeah, it people have to agree to be ruled by this certain people, or else you just get anarchy. Like the the power still, it's always relied with the people. Um, in in all honesty, because if the people just say screw it, you're not, you know, you know, ruling over us, well, then the the ruler really has to say, okay, well, am I going to kill them all, or am I going to actually, like, back down? Uh, because that's really his only two options when the people actually rise up. Now, there, and there have been rulers that, you know, have said, yeah, we'll, we'll just kill y'all, you know, why not? But, uh, but, yeah, you were, you were about to say something? Well, I was going to say that, the distinction between this, because I know the the first thing people go to is, well, if it's consent of the governed, how is that not social contract theory? And well, the, and the distinction is this: in the social contract theory, the government is an infinitely malleable system, where it the scope of its power and authority are decided by the social contract that people have amongst one another. Whereas from this position, your rulers and your magistrates and your sheriffs and all of the other guys are elected in some cases, but also rise to the trusted position based on competence. However, their scope is strictly defined by the scripture. 
So when Romans 12 and 13 give an outline of what civil government is supposed to do, then the government is held strictly by that standard. And all the liberalities that are given today that, that allow government to get into your every facet of life are no longer viable because these are all, on the face of them, they are infringements on liberty. And they're, they're a violation of the, the restrictions that were put in place by Scripture on, on the roles that a government should take, uh, that the, the roles of a government has. So, yeah, it's essentially social contract theory is mob rule, essentially, because the mob always gets to dictate what what the terms of the contract is in place. And, well, I mean, j just look at the French Revolution and we, we see what happens under this. The, the social contract theories fully out full outplaying is that it's literally might makes right again. Um well, it's important to note here that the guy who came up with the idea of social contract, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, was the mastermind behind the French Revolution. The French Revolution, and this is why it's always pointed to as the most egregious, because this gets to the heart of all of these other communist revolutions that happened across the world were based on Rousseau, but they were deviated from what Rousseau actually preached. The person who who came up with the idea of the social contract as the basis for society, that whole niche, they were the guys who literally ideologically created the French Revolution. It was the purest form of that theory. And the complete dismantling of French society by destroying anybody who opposed the revolution is the result. It is the necessary conclusion to his ideas. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what didn't the French revolution literally end a thousand year old monarchy? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was a thousand. Like I knew it ended the monarchy, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how long, but think about it. A, a monarchy. So that that's tying in the two different uh, theories that he refuted because so essentially, Dabney argues that through the divine right of kings, I'm going to tie all this back in a second, uh, but divine right of kings, that means the only um, legitimate authority is the one that is in the bloodline of the king. Well, that can't be possible because in some instances, there is no more bloodline of that king for them to actually follow. So that, that kind of refutes that whole point. Also, he brings in a lot of Old Testament examples to it. But with a social contract theory, it, who's to say who you're supposed to actually follow? Like, there's no absolute standard by which to, to you know, judge not only the, your magistrates, but your flipping laws. Like, the laws yeah. that you're supposed to follow. Um, and I don't think he touches on this, but even the looser form of divine right that was um, <clears throat> essentially, you know, the idea that I talked about earlier where... It was the ruling, the ruling family of the families. Uh, in Hoppe's book, From Aristocracy to Monarchy to Democracy, he actually points out that this was part of the, the, the argument that was given. Now, there's problems with Hoppe. First off, that he just, everything's about economics. But he, he legitimately points out that 
he legitimately points out that even within a in a hierarchy there are hierarchies and so the kings came out of this hierarchy within hierarchies this was the distillation of 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 many times hundreds of years of aristocracy where the king was the heir of the family who had most effectively leveraged political power. Despite Hoppe seeing this as strictly an economic thing, because it wasn't, he he, he is onto something in that this was the 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 most liberal form of the divine right argument that God had put this family above the other families as the ruler. Even this looser this this loose argument falls apart in the end. Because ultimately these kings overstep the boundary that was established for rulers in the scriptures. I mean, we can even look back at the first monarchies of um, of Israel, you know? E- even they overstepped their bounds. I mean... Yeah, and, and, and the, the judges, you had, you know, up to political assassination with Ehud, where he buried his knife into a, a fat king's belly because that fat king was abusing the people. I've always liked that story. Yeah. <laughs> he lost his knife within his bowels. Uh, based in assassin build. Right, correct. But, uh, yeah, so so divine right of kings, while, while that may be the government that God has ordained in person X's lifetime, that is not to, that is not to say that it's the only legitimate form of government. Um, and I think Dabney would agree with that. Like he's, you know, I, I think he would agree that if God has ordained a king over you, as long as he is within his bounds as king, it is, you still must obey him because he is the one that God put over you. However, that's not the only legitimate form. I, th- I think that's really what he was trying to get at at the beginning of it. If, um, if I'm catching what he's laying down. Yeah, I think that's what he's getting at. And and again, uh, you know, we seem to it may seem like we're stumbling about a bit just to get some proper categories here. Uh, but the important thing that I, I guess I'm trying to get across here is that uh, you know, the you have the categories and then the subcategories where, you know, a lot of times people try to conflate uh you know Theonomy with the little t, that's just describing a government as understood as uh, uh, theonomy with a little t that understands government as being given by God with certain boundaries and restrictions. And theonomy with the big T, where it it's an imposition of the Old Testament law onto today. And that that is a distinction. So two of the the positions that Gabney is is talking about here will affirm little little t theonomy 
However, uh, Big T Theonomy has some other issues, but would fall within, I believe, correct me if you think I'm wrong, it would fall within this theistic basis for civil disobedience. Uh, this theistic basis for civil obedience. Um, yeah, I mean, one is just trying to put the government in proper checks versus actually wanting the government to force actual um, Old Testament case law. So I, I'm personally a big T theonomist, but I'm okay stepping back for a moment for the sake of argument all around and say that God has ordained government thus far and no farther. They can't come into your churches and tell you to put a mask on because that's not their, that's not their jurisdiction. That, that we're, we're really talking about the scope of jurisdiction here um, rather than the actual type of government. Yes. Yeah. But, but I'm still going to argue for big T theonomy because well, it, it, it's real, it's a lot of fun. Well, I, I'm not a big T theonomist. Although, especially in recent years, I've, I've become, let's say, more sympathetic to it. Uh, what I don't want to do is I don't want to jump on bandwagons, and I feel like the Big T Theonomy is a bandwagon. Um, the basis that government is not derived from a social agreement between people is one of the big sticking issues here. And I say this because, you know, I'm I'm just freshly out of libertarianism. And, you know, a lot, I know a lot of guys in the South who go to libertarianism as opposed to uh, a proper view of government because they think libertarianism is winning and gaining some traction. And it's a way for them to use libertarianism as kind of a... Uh, stepping point to get across what they're getting and libertarianism is not the way to go about this libertarianism has some very serious flaws and doug wilson recently points this out on his podcast um no his blog doug wilson recently points this out on his blog the problems with the libertarian position and why we shouldn't give in to it so we've covered the arguments of uh of Dabney refuting the social contract and also the, the, the divine right of Kings. Uh, I think he calls him the legitimist. Uh, that was probably actually a, uh, a um, autistic party back then. Kind of like we have libertarians today. Um, the legitimist, the one that that wants to, to return under the crown. <clears throat> but anyways, so what, what is this unique situation that America is in? And uh, Dabney calls it the social compact um, of where the states have agreed, not the individuals, but the states have agreed to work in cooperation with a federal entity. So you still have the basis of, you know, excuse me, you still have the doctrine of lesser magistrate and you also still have the, the teaching or well, the doctrine of um, consent of the governed. <clears throat> but but it is not the people that have entered into a compact with the federal government. It is the states and the people have entered into contract with the states there, i.e. their lesser magistrate. 
Uh, there's a lot in between the people and the state, but you you, you kind of get the drift of where that's going, right? Um, and, and the 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 people, you know, the the government closest to the people governs best is is like a little maxim you can pull from this, and they they believed in localism. They believe that the local government should be the government that you're most concerned about, and very few people really cared about what was happening on the state level. Uh, this is one of the issues that was happening during the Civil War. Uh, you know, there are a lot of places that just didn't know there was a war on. You know, they were living their lives and doing their thing, and, you know, sometimes it was up to a year after the war started where they were just then feeling some of the effects of the war. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. Because that shows that these people largely live their lives unmolested. Return to tradition. Yeah, reject modernity. I mean, that's kind of why I'm, uh, you know, that's one of the biggest reasons why I like the countryside is because I don't like actually knowing what the... uh, the evil politicians are doing. I just want to live my life. And if you're, if you're, you ain't even got to be that far out in the woods. You just got to be in the right places and you can pretty much live as free as you want. As long as you're not dumb about it. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not telling you to go and get you a self a steel or, or drill that third pin for your AR. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying, (laughs) I'm just saying, no one's going to know what you do as long as you don't make a scene. All I'm, All I'm saying, saying is that the inspector is not going to go out there for no reason. Right, exactly. Don't give him a reason. Uh, but I'm not telling you to do anything illegal because we we want you to obey the laws of the lesser magistrate. Okay, so we've, we've covered, you know, pretty much the what, what the state's there for. But as we all know right now, that government tends to encroach upon civil liberties. We can look at it right now. We can look at it with the, the Bolsheviks in, uh, in Russia, how they, um, they encroached upon civil liberties. We can even go back to the Spanish Inquisition and how they, you know, they, they would arrest you for, for well, I'm going to go ahead and say it, but thought crimes, heresies, according to the Catholic Church. What what is to be what is to make theism safer than atheism? Um, to take to govern the people with like, why should we believe that civil liberty is safer under the theist than the atheist? And well, Dabney was sitting on that side of communist Russia, and we're sitting on this side of it. But we can just compare death counts. All of Christendom combined, let's take all the all the uh, civil liberty violations under Christendom combined for the last 2,000 years, and it's not even going to you know, amount up to anything compared to what the Bolsheviks did in Russia. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll even go this far. Uh, I, think, I think the people on this podcast probably got at least a halfway understanding of the people who are running this country right now. And, you know, the the absolute hatred that these people have of humanity itself. You know, Klaus Schwab gets up there at the 
the World Economic Forum and says that the fourth industrial revolution is a revolution of human existence. We're, we're going to change what it means to be human. Now, this was the goal, by the way, of Stalin. This was the goal of Mao. The only thing that has changed is instead of putting you in a work camp and giving you a five-year plan, they're going to use neoliberalism and, you know, technology that borders on, you know, sorcery. That That's the difference. They're, they're going to try to change your DNA. They're going to try to incorporate uh, cybernetics into your existence as a human being. And these are the people who are running, ruling you right now. So they want to necessarily invade every element of your life and control it. A theist, someone who does not believe that government comes from this decision that society has to just work together, but comes from God and has natural and just regulation on what it can do, would not go down this road. Because in this context, in the context of a theist, government is not for social change. Government is to ensure justice. I think that hits the, uh, the, the, the nail squarely on the head. Um, and, and I think the roots really go back. I mean, well, obviously the roots are going back to the Jacobins. Um, they're the ones that wanted to push for social change via the government. Uh, they're the pro I, I always call them the proto-communist yeah. um, because that's what they are. I mean, it is a flattening out of hierarchies and let's use the state to do this. Everyone's the equal. Everyone's the same. And if everyone's the same, then no, no one's actually, you know, important anymore. Everyone's expendable, right? Well, I mean, everybody's the same until you're, you know, a, a wasp, right? Uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? Um, I mean, that's that's what it matters is when you're that. Uh, everybody else is the same, and that's because you spent the last eight hundred years or a thousand years or whatever number they pull out of their ass. You've taken that long. You've been in charge that long. So you need to shut up and sit down. Now, that that's not to talk about the kind of equality that they believe in. The Jacobins were who Dabney was dealing with in his day. But in our day, it's neoliberalism. And neoliberalism wants to take apart and re actually remove these differences from you so that... You don't, you're, you're not distinct. You're not different than everybody else. Now, the argument that they give is this consent of the governed, right? All men are created equal, right? Well, I have to pull a quote out of this essay because I think Dabney does a very good job of defending his position here. And... 
this is probably the most hard-hitting quote that I've seen in a Dabney essay to date. He says, I assert that it is incredible. The American Congress... I assert that it is incredible. The American Congress of 1776 could have meant their proposition to be taken in the Jacobin sense, for they were British Whigs. Their perpetual claim was to the principles and franchises of the British Constitution and no other. Their politics were formed by the teaching of John Hampton, Lord Fairfax, Algernon Sidney, Lord Somers, and the revolutionists of 1688. I would be loath to suppose that those great men were so stupid and ignorant of their own history, uh, were so stupid and ignorant of the history of their own country, as to not understand the British rights which they expressly say that they were claiming. Now, this he gets further into this, where the pretended equality, that he calls it, works unjust inequalities. He says, Of what avail would it be to declare that all women have the same natural right with myself to wear a beard and to sing bass, when nature has decided to say that they shall not? What is the use of legislating that all lazy fools shall acquire and preserve the same wealth as diligent and wise men? The law of the universe ordains that they shall not. I urge further that an attempt to confer upon all the same franchises to which the wise and virtuous are competent upon the foolish and morally incompetent is not only foolish, but impossible. It is a positive and flagrant injustice to all worthier citizens. For when these unsuitable powers were abused by the unworthy, all suffer together. This is what we're seeing today. Literally anybody has the right to vote. Literally anybody has the right to affect political change. And there's a lot of people out there who do not have the civic virtue to actually engage on a political level yes and uh yeah definitely uh and and we and we can see this with with that uh that that homeless people get, get the same amount of, of of civic rights and civic duties as a guy that owns you know three homes and a business in a community a homeless person gets as much say in the government as that guy the one that actually puts his money into his his local community and dead uh, people have the right to vote. Yes, and dead people have the right to vote. And it's it's ironic in here. He he talks about the Jacobins wanting universal suffrage, yet um, yet they're not extending that right to women, and they're not extending it to to aliens. And and today we're you know we're actually arguing about extending the right to vote to aliens, like people that aren't even citizens here. Well, I mean. This is the the natural result of neoliberalism, right? It's all about the finances for these guys. It's all about the money for these guys. And as long as they can make money, then, you know, the people working under them ought to have the rights to say what happens with their company. And it, I this might seem a little far-fetched, but I couldn't put it past these people to ask for uh, Mexicans and Argentinians and uh, and Canadians to be able to vote in American elections 
for no other reason than they'll say, well, they're on the borders. What happens here affects them. Why can't they vote? It's, it's, it's not that much of a jump to that from having illegals vote. It, 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 it's really not like not 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 at all um i think he actually mentions that in one either this essay or a previous essay about about having people of the world actually vote on internal affairs that was on but women's rights women's rights women i i knew it i knew it was ringing a bell i just i, yep. I couldn't remember okay uh so okay what what are rights like we me and you are both talking that not everyone has the same rights, right? Like the right to vote isn't a universal right. Period. End of discussion. I don't. I, you can't even at me, bro, because I'm I'm on another plane with that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I what, will what at these... you, and then I'll give you the uh, the the Confederate yes man. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Chad. Not GIF. Yes. Um. No, not GIF. But Jay. Anyways. So. So what are these rights? What what are they? Well, first off, we have inalienable rights. Like that, that's something that both me and you would agree with. These are these are things that are given by our creator. Thomas Jefferson said it best, even though he was a heretic. He was functionally a heretic, but he said it best that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That's life, liberty, and property. He said pursuit of happiness, but we all know what he meant. And it's true. Those well, that was a that was a concession to get the Yankees in. They, yeah, because it, because they didn't want to have the whole slavery argument at that time. Right. But um, but anyways, and I think we would all agree with that. Like that, though, you can have those rights as much as you want because they're negative rights. Um, it is something good that I learned from in the libertarian circles is about negative rights, like. No one should be able to prevent you from doing those things. Like, go live your life, pursue happiness, um, glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. And that's essentially what rights are. Rights are responsibilities endowed upon you to glorify Him. So you can be a good steward or a bad steward with it. What we mean by people don't have the same rights is I don't have the same rights as as the wealthiest man in my county does he has a higher responsibility than i do to use what he has the the stuff that was bestowed upon him to glorify god in a different way than i would right so there this gets into um this is why i suggested the name for the podcast well let me back that up this is why we have the name of the podcast the dixie polis um these ideas are not new ideas that Dabney's promoting. These ideas go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. And they were talked about, uh, you know, and I say they go back to Plato and Aristotle because they were elucidated by Plato and Aristotle. Men are given certain rights according to their role. Now, I want to I wanna put this in uh, another quote from Dabney, because I think this this is, well, I don't think, um, because this gives a further clarification from Dabney, and it's the reason why last time and this time I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say it again. This is where his Aristotelianism is kind of coming out here. He says, 
But among the inalienable natural rights of all the uh, of all are these: privilege to pursue and attain one's rational and equitable end, virtue, and that grade of well-being appropriate to the social position of each for time and eternity, and for adults, liberty of thought, inquiry, and belief, so far as human compulsion goes. So, what he's saying here is that the store owner is going to have a certain set of responsibilities. The laborer is going to have another set of responsibilities. The field hand is going to have yet another uh, set of responsibilities. And so according to that set of responsibilities that these three people I've mentioned have, you apportion to them rights. And those rights are so that within their sphere, you allow them the full range of motion so as to give them the ability to best do their job and to best perform their function in society. Rights were given to these people. Uh, this, this is an overlooked idea, but there were rights afforded to slaves that were not afforded to other people. And those rights that were given under slavery were that they had to be maintained and cared for as part of your ownership of them because they were recognized as human beings. You can't just treat a human being however you want to treat them. You have to treat them according to the just weight and scales that are given by the scriptures. You can't abuse your slaves. Now, we can argue the point of slavery all day long, but the, the, the point here is that you know, each role in society needs to be given the appropriate, you know, degrees of liberty to perform their role. And so there were a rights, there were rights specifically given to them. So that's where the rights come in differently. Of course, all people in society have the right to live so that they not die, they not be killed, right? And if someone was killed, then there would be a just punishment for that person being killed. This runs totally counter-narrative to the uh, modern mainstream uh, narrative on slavery, how they were just property, they had no rights. Um, or that if everyone's not equal, then, you know, they have no rights. Um, and, and to that I say, well, that's complete malarkey. Uh, we are all protected to the same extent under the law. Um Granted, we still live in a sinful world, so some people with better connections are more protected than others. But when we say that people are not equal, that doesn't mean that the state can still run roughshod over them and and uh, deny them their their rights, such as not to self-incriminate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they still are offered those same protections, even under Jim Crow South. There was those protections for the. Uh, for the um, poorer communities. But, but also at the same time, those with more rights than others, uh, you know, I can hear the, 
I can hear the neoliberals screaming right now that that that's white privilege or that's privilege into to the people say, yeah, that 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 is privilege because God has ordained you to live in such a station that you you are more elevated than someone else. So don't squander it. Uh, privilege isn't a bad thing. I don't I don't know why the, the right seems to want to fight it so hard. I mean, I understand fighting against the leftist narrative of, you know, the fiction that is white privilege, but um, privilege isn't a bad thing. Um, we, because who our daddy is actually does matter. I, I think we covered that in an earlier podcast. Who your daddy is matters uh, since some people are born more pri- privileged than others. Uh, but that's because they've been good stewards in their their previous uh, uh, previous parents. But with the epidemic of single mothers, you have people who it, don't have anything. They don't have any father, and <laughs> so they don't have any grounding in, in in the history of their their society. They have to build everything from the bottom up. Now, this is this is true in some sense with all people. But, you know, a person who doesn't have a heritage doesn't have a history. And if they don't have a history, they don't have any grounding. And that's why you see these, the, you know, people without fathers, you know, even if the father doesn't teach their tradition of their families, uh, some of those traditions still carry over. And it, and it comes in the form of work ethics and discipline and and in general life wisdom that men are naturally inclined to to perform in those roles anyways and so fathers naturally go towards that end because that's what fathers are supposed to do we're geared towards that um even they have some tradition even though it's not overtly talked about but people without fathers are completely traditionless they're completely left adrift without any grounding in reality and you you see these people they can't even they can't even change their tire they can't they can't you know they're they're there's some guys who are 40s and 50s and can't change the batteries in their and their smoke detectors like it it's it's pathetic really and also they they can't see where they come from like they can't see the struggle that it was to get them there because if they don't know who their daddy is, they, they, you know, like, okay, so here lately I've been digging into the family tree a little bit. And, um, if you don't know who your dad is, that's an entire side of a family tree mm-hmm. that you'll never know who it is. Like you won't ever know where your people come from. And the sign of, it's the side of discipline too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the side of, um, it's the side of order and discipline and, and and duty that that's the side that you lose which is which is I don't know, it's what grounds you you know women women are good at nurturing women are good at uh, uh caring but they are not good at grounding this is what men do part of what it means to be a man is that we ground ourselves uh in in our vocation and in our responsibilities as a father your job is part of your job is to be a sage you're supposed to be giving wisdom as you acquire it you spread that wisdom far and wide 
And women aren't geared towards that. They're geared towards nurturing and protecting and and uh, uh, caring for. But they're not geared towards this. So there are there are some situations where single mothers are single mothers because they don't have any choice. But most of the time, that's not the case. The overwhelming majority of the time, single mothers are single mothers out of convenience. Yeah. And they destroy their children because of it. Well, so so I kind of liken back what you said is you know the the man's it's the man's job to carry the torch through the wilderness, it's the woman's job to nurture the flame once you know he builds a house for her. Yeah, and then the the, the child is the one that that carries it on. Like she teaches the child about the flame that the father brought there. And then he carries it on to the next generation to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, that's, you're... Some, that's some deep esoterica right there. <laughs> well, but it, it's it's how societies are formulated, uh, well, and this this is why I I keep bringing up Aristotle because Aristotle talks about this. He he elucidates this. Well, even even Dabney gets into um, a little bit later on. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but even later on, he says the foundation of civil government is the family. Like it starts off as a family, mm-hmm. then it goes as a clan, and then it just keeps growing from there. Like that, that's why I'm unironically a Scottish clan nationalist because I just want clans everywhere, and we can handle our own damn business. You know, um, I. But 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 that that's how it works out. Like the 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 family consents to living under the clan. The clan consents to living under you know the lesser magistrate, and it's all vice versa. Like we have the lesser magistrate there because God ordained him to be there. But essentially, we put him there for the good of everyone. Yeah, I mean, I I would I would place that more in. Uh, I would say the clan today, the clan that we need to build around is the church and use that as our basis. But that's not to rule out any other form of 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 clans to build around. Well, most churches are made of clans, anyways. Um, it's typically a few families that are there and. Um, it makes up the majority of the church. I mean, not always, but uh, generally these old southern churches are, are ruled by clans. Um, yeah. Whether you, we like it or not, for good or ill. Well, I mean, and some of these churches are just ruled by women. So. Well, that, that's true. They're matriarchal clans because uh, the patriarchs are out there, uh, you know, talking about the Alabama football game. Yes. Not casting any dispersions on the people that like Alabama football games. I've just seen it more times than not. The men talking about football while the women are deciding what's going to go on in church. So speaking of tyranny. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, women rule is tyranny. Why is it tyranny? Because by the very definition, she is operating outside of her realm of influence and authority that God has not given her. Therefore, it is tyrannical. Even if she is a sweet old lady, if she is doing it, she is a tyrant. I mean, Paul said he <laughs> he, he would not hear of a woman 
usurping authority over a man. Behead unruly women, Merlin. (laughs) (laughs) Still my favorite meme. Okay, uh, so we're like at an hour right now. Would you just want to cut off at that and then start on a a, uh, resisting tyranny? (laughs) We're going to end this podcast with behead unruly women. Uh, well, let's well, no, no, for real. Let's do it. I'll, uh, I'll stop my recording and we'll start a new one. Yeah, let's. We we can do that.
Hey y'all, thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at SouthernRaisedBluegrass.com. God bless y'all. See